Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 211 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Lexi Myers. She graduated from the University of Washington's medical SLP program and did her fellowship at the Long Beach VA Hospital. She's an acute care SLP who splits her full-time job between a level one trauma center and a dedicated cardiac surgical hospital. She also works two per diem jobs at another trauma center and another rural hospital. She has been the dedicated cardiac speech pathologist for several years with an emphasis on post-surgical care. Oh gosh, I know you guys are going to love this episode. I feel like Lexi is just the epitome of an amazing SLP who sought out a passion, who sought out an area that she wanted to work in and she made it work for her. She acquired the knowledge, she made the relationships and as you'll hear now, she's working her dream job and she's just so, so knowledgeable. So hope you all love this episode. Hope you learn a ton from it. I know I did. And, and I'm super grateful to Lexi for sharing all of her wisdom with us. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Lexi. Good morning, Teresa. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I am beyond ecstatic to be here. This yes. is so exciting. Yes, yes. So let's let's clarify. She's Lexi to everybody in the world. And I saw in my calendar that I had a podcast today with an Alexis. And I was like, who is this person? Oh my <laughs> gosh. And I'm like, how did they get on my calendar? What is this? And I was like, oh, it's Lexi. Yay. So um, yeah, so don't call her Alexis. Legally, it's Alexis. But if you call me Alexis, give me a couple seconds to be like, oh, that's me. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So welcome, Lexi. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Um, my name is Lexi Myers. I work in Central Valley, California. 
I'm currently working at a level one trauma center, and I also cover a dedicated cardiac surgical hospital that's up the street from my hospital. It's the same overarching umbrella corporation. And then I PR in on top of that uh, at another trauma center and then at a rural hospital. So I've pretty much always been in acute care, but I've been at different hospitals and kind of different settings, varying from rural to level one trauma center. I primarily cover post-surgical cardiac patients, um, but I would consider myself to be a you know, just the cardiac speech pathologist, seeing people from ICU all the way to when they're leaving the hospital. Um, but primarily, most of my work is in the CV ICU, so the cardiovascular ICU, and typically those are post-surgical patients. Awesome. Awesome. So you love to work. I love to hear that. I do. I really love this field. I really love this job. I've been obsessed with it since I started going into my post back program, and it has just been you know, wonderful, loving your job. Do I love every day of my job all the time? No, but overall, I think our field is amazing. And I am just so interested to keep learning and keep deep diving. And it's been fantastic. I really do love this profession. Awesome. I love to hear that, Lexi. Yeah. So talk a little bit, because you went to the University of Washington, you got to go to the med, they had a med SLP program there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I am actually a little afraid of children. Okay. Like I, I don't really <laughs> should have be there terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any kids. Um, I've never really worked with kids. So when I was looking at grad school programs, I really wanted to just go medical and I was really intimidated by the school. I thought there's no way I could do this. I can't handle that caseload. So I was like, med SLP route is for me because it's all medical. Um, I really, really loved that program because it really spoke to me in just preparing you for the medical SLP world. There's so much that we need to know that grad school is never going to cover 100% of it. So much of this is on-the-job training, but the University of Washington was a fantastic place just to get all of your externships, the medical placements, so that you're more prepared for your fellowship and then ultimately finding a job. And I just really love rainy, cloudy, overcast weather. So it really worked for me. Perfect. (laughs) Oh, I I love to hear that, Lexi. Yeah. So, so where, where should we dive in? I, there's so much I want to talk about. There's so much I would love to hear from you. So let's talk about, I guess, how did you find this love of working in the cardiac ICU? Yeah. So at my current job, uh, which is the trauma center, I, onboarded there. And then a couple months into it, the speech pathologist who was covering all the cardiac patients left. And so they were asking for a volunteer because while there's a big group of us, I think there's like eight of us at the level one trauma center, there is that dedicated cardiac surgical hospital up the road. And there's not really enough caseload to have multiple people go there. So they just kind of have one designated point person. And I volunteered because At the time, I was just like, I don't know. I like heart. I liked uh, Christina Yang on Grey's Anatomy. Like, I'll do that. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It has been such a journey these last couple years. Just going into the CVICUs, covering these post-surgical patients, it is incredibly intimidating. I mean, you walk into the unit and 
in the general meta SLP world, which I'd already been working in, I'm used to walking into a room and seeing some equipment, some lines, you know, a couple things here and there. But these post-surgical patients, there's not four IVs running. There's 10. And there's a continuous dialysis machine at the bedside. And there's a heart pump at the bedside. Like there is just so much stuff that it's incredibly intimidating to walk into that and be like, where do I stand? Who do I talk to? And then in the CVICU and the cardiac world, it's got its own language. There's a million different acronyms. I am still finding words to this day where I have to Google stuff because it's just so overwhelming just trying to read through the charts. And then you're talking to staff and in general, staff aren't as used to our presence as say staff in a stroke unit would be. So, you know, building that relationship is scary. So just orienting to the unit was overwhelming. Like there were so many days that I just felt really stressed out. But then beyond that, just actually going to see the patient and wondering how you're going to run your clinical practice. These patients have such tenuous status that they can change on a dime. A lot of them have poor respiratory status after their surgery. There are so many precautions and things to keep in mind that it's just super overwhelming, or at least it was for me. And then I tried to find resources. So I was looking for a CEU class. I was looking for a mentorship. I was looking for something to help guide me on this process. And it was really frustrating because there wasn't a ton out there. It kind of just felt like being alone. Mm -hmm. It's not as common as like, you know, like neuro speech pathology, trauma speech pathology, head and neck cancer speech pathology. So it's this catch 22 where SLPs as a field, we don't spend as much time in the cardio ICUs. And so we're less used to it. And then in turn, the staff there are less used to us. So they consult us less. They know what we do less. And it's just this kind of vicious cycle. Yeah. So, so I guess I'd love to really hear you know, how you, I guess, got the confidence to go in there and just where you started with learning everything. Um, you know, like, like you said, it was intimidating, but really, yeah. How, how did you just sort of swallow your pride and get in there? Yeah. So the first thing that I did was I would hang out in the cardiovascular ICU. So, you know, I'm working at QCare. I still have to manage a caseload of people outside of these units. I still have to maintain productivity. So what I would do is I would see all of my patients in the morning, you know, run around like a chicken with my head cut off. And then when it comes time to document and really do all that backend stuff, I would just park it in the CVICU just so that I could start building relationships with these people in the cardiovascular unit. So doing my notes there, you just naturally strike up conversations with staff. They get more used to their face if they're, you know in a room and they're asking like, can somebody help me boost patient 12? Like, Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so they just start getting more used to you being around. And then you find the people who you can tell just by interacting with them are willing to provide some level of mentorship. So finding those nurses, I think is going to be the first thing who you can just say, Hey, can you tell me what you're thinking about when you look at this patient? Like, what is this machine? What is it doing? What's this number readout? What does it mean? Like, can you tell me where you're coming from and the things that you know to kind of start orienting you to the to the CVICU? You have to find somebody who's willing to help you along the way. And if you don't have a speech pathologist at your facility who can do that, you're going to have to turn to the staff. 
And so you're going to have to start building that relationship with the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the surgeons, and the mid-level providers as well. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like they were helpful? Like, do you feel like they were welcoming or they were like, I'm too busy, Lexi, figure it out. Like, <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I, we're yeah, all, you no, know, no. crazy busy. Yeah. I mean, they're crazy busy. These people are really sick. They're really tenuous. Like they are, they have to be a game all the time. And so I'm not going to lie. When I first started working in the cardiovascular ICUs, it wasn't exactly the warmest reception. I had to spend at least a couple months just building relationships, like not specifically, you know, demonstrating, oh, I'm a speech pathologist and this is what I can provide to you. This is how smart I am. This is all the things that I've learned, but just building the relationships so that they want me there, just making friends with some of the nurses, being a face that they recognize. Um, if you are going to be pushing into the CVICU and your team wants to start going to cardiac patients more often, I would say have one point person who's the face of cardiac speech pathology. They really need to start learning who we are and what we can do. And that starts by just building some sort of casual relationship with them. Um, you know, a neuro unit is going to recognize speech pathology and immediately know why we're there. A cardiovascular unit is probably going to be like uh, a little bit more cautious about why you're here. And two, are you going to make my job more difficult? Are you going to get in my way? Are you going to, you know, recommend things that are really going to impact my ability to get my job done? So just building that relationship first is absolutely critical. And it may take a little bit of time, but it's going to pay off immensely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's one thing that means a lot to me is just relationships mean everything. And they, they, you know, mean something in just getting to know colleagues and, and getting to know things. But then when you also need actually to learn something, they don't, you know, like you said, you've built that relationship, you've cultivated that. So they aren't, you know, they're more willing to help out. Yeah, exactly. You can have the biggest bank of knowledge in your brain and the best technical skills and the best therapeutic skills and everything that you can do to be the best speech pathologist you have. But if the surgeons don't want to consult you, if the nurses don't want to reach out to you, if they don't want you there, if they don't want you around, you're not going to be effective. So building that relationship is incredibly important. And I think it's just important to keep in mind, too, that every CVICU is going to be a little different. So the procedures that they can perform are going to be different. Um, The, you know, surgical techniques that the surgeons use are going to be different. The practice patterns are going to be different. So what's true for one CVICU might not be true for another, but the same underlying principles of they're probably not as used to your presence apply and you need to get them on your side. Yep. Yep. I love it. So I wanted to start just broadly talking about why these patients might be having problems swallowing, um, particularly with post-surgical patients. Again, that would be where I spend the majority of my time is these patients who've had some sort of heart surgery. And Emily did a fantastic job talking about these in a previous podcast episode. I was so excited when her episode came out. I know, I know. So great. I was like, oh my God, someone's talking about cardiac. Yes, Yes, it was great. Um, But I just wanted to gloss over some highlights and maybe some things to consider And the way that I did this is that when I started working there, I found it incredibly helpful to have like a little checklist that I would fill out like a physical piece of paper 
that I would fill out with each of these broad themes or categories for each patient so I could write it down and visualize before walking into the room why I think this patient might have a dysphagia. So I'll just briefly touch on them because, again, Emily talked about most of these. But the first section just being nerve injury. So the surgery itself, you know, we've got that left recurrent laryngeal nerve wrapping right under that aortic arch. That is a high value zone for any sort of aortic surgery, heart surgery, uh, that's really sensitive there to any sort of stretch or damage and what I like to call just nerve shock. So it doesn't mean that the nerve was severed, but after these surgeries, a lot of the times these patients will have some issues with their left recurrent laryngeal nerve. So keeping that in mind, and then also just injury from potentially the intubation. I, I love that you said, sorry, I'm going to stop you there a second, Lexi. I love that you said nerve shock because I think that's such a huge, I think that's a great way to explain it. Sometimes it's like, what happened? And it's like, well, I don't, it's intact, but it, it's not working right. So it's yeah. fine. And in my experience, yeah. <laughs> like the, it comes back pretty dang quickly. You know, we're talking days, maybe a couple of weeks, but for a little while, right after the post-op period, these people can have a lot of issues with that recurrent laryngeal nerve, but it, it, it's there. It's just, you know, it's hibernating. It's, it's yep. in shock. <laughs> yep. And then the intubation itself, which I think we as speech pathologists are already really good about considering of, you know, how big is the tube that they put down their throat and how long was it in there for? But just kind of think about nerves when you're thinking about these patients. And then the next section is just respiratory issues after surgery. So pulmonary function is really commonly affected after, after cardiac surgery. Cardiac surgery is a massive insult to the body. It's a life-saving procedure, but it's a massive insult on the body that can produce a systemic inflammatory response, and that impacts the lungs. So you see a lot of these patients after surgery in the immediate post-op phase they might require a lot of supplemental O2. These are the people who are on high flow. Sometimes they're in, intermittent with high flow. They're intermittent with BiPAP. They are not breathing how they normally do. They're kypnic. They are gasping for air. They might be just from pain from the incision guarded and not want to take deep breaths. So respiratory status is incredibly important to look into for these post-op patients because when the respiratory status declines, we as speech pathologists kind of know, so too is swallowing. And that's not a permanent thing. It's not a long-term impact. But while they're having that poor respiratory status, they are way more likely to have issues with their swallowing. So just take a look in their chart, see what they're breathing like, see how much oxygen they need. The next section is just deconditioning. So you can have these patients who come into the hospital with this gradual deconditioning as the symptoms of their whatever heart issue they have are impacting their functioning. So are they getting short of breath? Do they get lightheaded when they move around? And a great way to kind of think about it is there's something called the New York Heart Association Functional Classification of Heart Failure. People will call it the NYHA. And it's just a rough score that just describes how are these symptoms of heart failure impacting a patient? So they range from not really impacting them at all, maybe when they're outside doing something vigorous like gardening or walking around the block, to on the other end of they're short of breath and they're experiencing these symptoms even when they're at rest, when they're not moving. And then there's, you know, the middle people who maybe just getting up and walking down the hallway to the restroom makes them produce these symptoms of heart failure. But this deconditioning that they're experiencing because 
if you're short of breath and getting lightheaded, you're not going to be as physically active. They're deconditioned coming to the hospital sometimes. And that's important to kind of know what do you think their functional reserve is just coming into the hospital? And then once they get here, they can have acute deconditioning. So they might be in the ICU for a long period of time. They might now be bed bound because of everything that's happened to them. Maybe they were intubated for a while and now they've got maybe some potential disuse atrophy of those swallowing muscles going on. So looking at that patient of how deconditioned were they before? How deconditioned are they now? And what do I think their functional reserve is? Because sometimes these patients come in and based off what they described to me, I think they've had a dysphagia for a long time. They talk about, oh, I always cough or I always, you know, regurgitate my mashed potatoes and all that kind of stuff. And maybe before they could handle it. But now, you know, they've got a midline incision going down their body. They're stuck in a hospital bed and they're struggling to breathe. Somebody who is, you know, functionally aspirating before might not be able to do that now because their overall status has just rapidly changed. And then another thing is just being cognitively impaired from all the different sedation that you're on from surgery. So they're coming out of anesthesia. They're on a ton of pain medications. They can have temporary trouble swallowing just because their sensory input isn't as strong in this moment. Those afferent feedback loops are impaired. They've got so many drips and IVs going. Everything about their hemodynamics is being finely tuned. So they've got something to raise their blood pressure, lower their blood pressure, modulate their heart rate, manage their pain, maybe sedate them if they're getting restless. And all these things are running simultaneously. And just this overall clinical picture of, I just, you know, had my chest cracked open and now I'm being managed so tightly with all these different medications, their overall alertness, particularly if they're older, can really be impacted. And while we know that swallowing is a reflex, that cortical input is really important for fine-tuning and modulating that swallow. So if you're altered, I'm already thinking that you might have tr more trouble than you would as if you were, you know, stark awake. And then just this last little one, esophageal issues. So I've been reaching out to all the different like cardiac speech pathologists that I can find. And it is one of the things that we all sort of oh my gosh, you see that too? Oh, I see that too. You see that too? Like, it's crazy how often these people have esophageal issues. And we know from, well, one from Julie Huffman's podcast episodes a while ago and taking any of her courses, which I highly recommend, complete game changers, that oral pharyngeal phase and esophageal phase, while scope of practice, we might delineate them, they are so interconnected. And so you've got these cardiac patients who might have uh, esophageal issues from just things like anesthesia can affect esophageal function, opioids and pain medications, TEE, which is that probe that goes through their mouth down into their esophagus and uses sound waves to look at their heart. All those things can cause esophageal changes, which if you're thinking of a kitchen sink and, you know, like the, the pharynx is the kitchen sink and the esophagus is like the draining pipe, if you start clogging or messing with the draining pipe, eventually it can back up into the pharynx. So for these patients, we do them such a disservice if our investigation stops at the UES. These patients have such a high rate of esophageal issues that I cannot recommend more esophageal sweeps for these patients. You need to be looking at this to see what's going on there. So just those five different sections. So nerve injury, respiratory status, 
deconditioning, cognitive status, and potentially any esophageal issues, start thinking of that during your chart review and keep that in mind while you're trying to assess the patient. Those are just the things that I found are really common themes in cardiothoracic uh, patients that have really helped me guide my practice and help me kind of center my diagnostic mind before I even walk into the room. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that sort of lends in, you know, you're talking about how with all these patients, it's important to do the esophageal sweep. And then, but we also think it's super important to get fees in really early with these patients. So talk a little bit about, you know, how you, you know, manage the, the instrumental at this point. Yes. So I cannot recommend fees more for a cardiovascular unit. We need fees in these units. So for thinking about fees, we need to get there early. And I would say usually earlier than you think. I like to get in there same day as surgery or the day after surgery and assess these patients. Because a lot of the times they you'll walk in and you'll see all this equipment and the patient will kind of be a little bit out of it. They might be on high flow and you're like, oh, there's no way I would never. But then you actually assess these patients and there's a lot of the times where they can do something. Um, And so fees is going to be critical because if you are thinking of that patient with all of that equipment, with that tenuous status who might turn on a dime for reasons unrelated to dysphagia, do you want to take that patient off unit down to fluoro or wherever your fluoro suite is with, you need a nurse, you need a respiratory therapist, you need transport, you need the radiologist, you need the rad tech, you need all these people. There, it's, so hard on the staff and the patient that it's just not feasible in the immediate post-op phase to get these patients to video fluoroscopy in a timely matter in the first day or two. So a lot of the times, if all you have is video, the surgeons might be less likely to let you do those things because they don't want that patient out of that room away from the support staff and the equipment that they need. So fees is going to be absolutely essential for getting in there early. Because with the fees, you can say, hey, I have this equipment. I'll come to the patient. I don't really need anybody else. Maybe I need like a nurse to help me feed the patient if the patient can't do it themselves. But you are releasing a ton of burden on the staff there. I can get this done and I don't really need a ton of assistance and I don't need to take the patient off the unit. You're going to be able to get in there much quicker than if you only had access to videos. Um, Another reason that it's great is you want to be able to grossly look at their laryngeal function. So those or that arytenoid movement, a lot of the times because of, you know, the right recurrent laryngeal, or I'm sorry, the left recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, you might find that they have a paresis or a paralysis of their vocal folds. And that's really important to keep in mind that diagnostically is going to help you advocate to the surgeon on this is why I think a patient might have a dysphagia or this is why I think a patient might have a dysphonia. And it's really great to be able to get in there early and look at that. And there actually is some new literature that was published that said around 25% of these post-op patients had some degree of vocal fold immobility, which that's a big number, 25%. So getting fees is going to be, it's going to make your life so much easier if you can get access to that equipment. And I know that it's not always, you know, an immediate thing, but if you can get the ball rolling now and it takes a year, it takes two years for you to get it, two years from now, you is going to 
thank you that you have it. Yeah. Is that, did your hospital have that already, Lexi, or is that something you had to work to get in? So that was such a process. So at my level one trauma center, we already have fees. So the CVICU over there, fees, no problem. Now then there's that cardiac hospital that's up the road and currently do not have fees. We only have access to videos. So I'm speaking from personal experience when I say that it is hard to operate in a cardiovascular unit without fees. Thankfully, we are, I'm like 99% confident going to be getting fees before the end of the year. And I am so excited that I'm not going to lie, you know, it was a process and it ended up being a little bit of advocacy, but also a little bit of luck. But I am incredibly thankful that we are most likely going to be getting fees by the end of the year because I think it's going to just open up a whole new world over there. Um, The only thing that's been a little nice is typically that cardiac hospital is more elective procedures. And so in general, not always, but in general, they're usually a little bit better off than they are the downtown where it's more the urgent procedures. But yeah, I am so incredibly excited to have fees. I am so excited. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So when I was pushing into the CDICUs, I went through this massive literature review. I printed every article I could find and I just went crazy with it. And I found the more that I read, the more that the methodology really varied for all of these papers that were published about CDICU and dysphagia. Most of the time, it's a retrospective chart review, meaning they're looking back in time and saying, okay, for all these patients who had, you know, cardiac surgery, how many of them got tagged for an ICD-9 or ICD-10 code for dysphagia? But that's subject to some bias because that means you had to get diagnosed with the dysphagia. And I mean, if we're already talking and understanding that speech pathology is less prevalent in CVICs in general that's kind of subject to maybe a lot of people just didn't get diagnosed with dysphagia. So you have a lot of retrospective chart reviews, or you have some studies that were using prospective design, but with instrumentals, but they're using a a screening protocol to decide who gets and who doesn't get an instrumental. But then the screening protocol isn't really validated in this population. So it's just, it was really frustrating when I started doing this chart review because I'm sorry, literature review, because from a clinical perspective, what do I look for and how do I manage all this when the incidence rate is varying from 3% to 70%? That's really frustrating to, uh, you know, talking to a surgeon like, hey, you should consult me because there's a 3 to 70% chance that this patient might have dysphagia. And then the, the risk factors were all over the place. Uh, I couldn't find two papers that had the same risk factors in place for these patients. And so in March of this year, so March of 2021, I was at the Virtual Dysphagia Research Society conference, and I went to this talk by Dr. Plowman. I saw the title cardiac in the, in the title. I was like, oh, that's for me. So I went, and she talked about this paper that was about to be published. So people, this is hot off the press. This was published in March of 2021, where they did a prospective study universally using fees for everybody who had a cardiac surgery. So they did exclude people who had a baseline dysphagia because they were looking for more specifically people who like were more likely to have developed a dysphagia from cardiac surgery and all the things that happened to these patients. 
And then their only criteria was you had to be extubated and maintaining your oxygen above 90% off BiPAP. And within 72 hours, everybody got a feed. So I was so excited to hear about this until I was clinically devastated because then they showed me the data from it where 52% of these patients were having um, significant issues with residue defined by the Yale residue scale. But then here's the kicker, 94% had some level of what they call unsafe or like disordered airway invasion with PO. So 94%. 94% people. I know. Uh, yeah. And so they classified it as, you know, penetration, aspiration, or safe. And I really want to mention here that the safe category included flash penetrators. So that PAS2 where it's dipping in and coming all the way out, those are included in the safe category. But that's only 6% of these patients. The bulk of them, 65%, are the PAS3 to 5 category. So they've either got residue in the vestibule after the swallow or it's getting down to the cords or something kind of funky is going on. But what really shook me was 29% were aspirating. So between a third and a fourth of all of these cardiac patients were aspirating, which for me is a huge number to say roughly a third of all of these patients are going to have issues with aspiration after the, after a surgery. Yeah. 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 And then if you look at that subset of 29% of those people who are aspirating over half the time, it's silent. So they're not having a cough response to it. They are not sensing that the aspiration has occurred and coughing in response. I would be so curious. This is just sort of tangential, but I, I would be so curious to see how many of those patients ended up without intervention going on to develop aspiration pneumonia or something. You know, we see so many of these patients and we're like, oh, they ended up with aspiration pneumonia. How did that even happen? They haven't even been eating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really tricky in the cardiac population because there's some literature, it's 9.6% of patients are after cardiac surgery are going to develop some sort of post-op pneumonia just from like that, you know, systemic inflammatory response. Like they, they develop a pneumonia. It's not necessarily related to aspiration. So roughly one in 10 of these people are going to develop some sort of issue with their lungs, but it can be really tricky in the cardiovascular unit with this high rate of silent aspiration, because it means, you know, if roughly 15% of them aren't coughing or aren't really alerting us that something's going wrong, these are the people who you're never going to get consulted for. They're never going to consult you to come see this patient if it's a silent aspiration event. So over half of these people, like 52, 50 something percent silent aspiration. Another third were coughing in response to aspiration, but it just wasn't effective. So that's that patient who you're getting the... <laughs> You know, they might have that reduced their retinoid adduction. They're just not able to get that, that subglottic pressure and cough it out. And then only a teeny weeny little 15% of patients were able to actually sense the aspiration and eject it with a cough. And they published the, the kind of outcomes for that. And so these people who were aspirators, they did have increased odds of developing pneumonia. So it was, I believe it was a 2.6% increased odds of developing pneumonia. They were at 5.7 increased odds of being reintubated. And it was 2.8 increased odds of 90-day mortality. 
So they were associating those pe- those patients who are aspirating with negative outcomes, pneumonia, reintubation, 90-day mortality. They also cost an extra 50-ish grand for their hospital stay. They were also just in the hospital for longer. I think it was an extra six days. And when they did their analysis of what the risk factors for aspiration were, some of them are the same as a lot of that previous literature I was looking at, and some of them it's a little different. So one of the risk factors that they looked at was New York Heart Association. So that classification of the patient's symptoms of heart failure. If it was a three or greater, meaning these patients are having symptoms when they're up and moving around, they were at an increased risk of being someone who aspirated after surgery. If they had any sort of reoperation, so if it was a second cardiac surgery, and that doesn't matter if you had two surgeries in the same um, admission or if this, you had a previous cardiac surgery, any history of cardiac reoperation, TEE images. So this one is not super obvious, but that's that probe, again, that's going through the mouth, down the esophagus, and looking at the heart. They're using that during surgery. And they used the amount of images that the physician took as like a surrogate for how many times they think the probe was twisted, moved up, moved down, which can, you know, cause irritation to the esophagus. But so TEE images was an independent risk factor for aspiration. The size of the endotracheal tube that they used, so if it was a size 8 or greater, and then I think what we all know as speech pathology to be true, the longer the duration of intubation, the more likely to have dysphagia. Um, for them, the independent risk factor was set at 27 hours. So anything over 27 hours, each one of these things is independently associated with an increased risk for aspiration. And what I think is really interesting is that when you start to combine them, so patients have multiple factors, you really get a jump in those increased odds. So if they had three of those risk factors, it was like 16.4 increased odds of aspiration. If you had four, I believe it was 22, 22 point something increased odds of aspiration. So you really get those jumps. So if you're seeing through your chart review that a patient has these factors, which you should be able to see in the chart, your like SLP alarm bells should just be going off. This is somebody who probably needs some special love and attention from speech pathology. And then I think what hurt me in my SLP heart the most was learning um, the data that they published. Um, Justine DeLal-York published this at a poster about the three-ounce water swallow test. So all these patients did the three-ounce water swallow test and who got the fees. And I'm used to the three-ounce water swallow test uh, being, you know, very highly sensitive in the 90s at least. For this population, it was only 63% sensitive. So clinically, that was incredibly devastating for me because that was how I was running my practice in the CVICU a lot. If I went in and just, you know, did a cranial nerve exam and gave the patient a couple ice chips and did a three-ounce water swallow test. If they passed that, it was, okay, bye, bye. But now learning that it's only 63% sensitive, like that's a huge jump compared to, you know, the 90, 95% that I'm normally using. Right, right. So what did you do? So I cried <laughs> first. <laughs> cried. Um and then I'm with I you, had to have, I yeah. know, I know, yeah. but it's true. 
Um, I went to like what I would like our main cardiac surgeon and, you know, it's really hard to get these surgeons in a location at a specific time. So you really just got to strike while the iron is hot and hang out around when they're rounding. And I just bumped into him and he happened to be like, oh, hey, Lexi, how are you doing? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm about to give you some bad news. And I just described, okay, I went to this conference. They published this new data. You know, it's this first prospect of study using instrumentals. And then speak their language. Give them outcomes. These were the outcomes for the patient. These are the risk factors. This is what they found. And then give them how you can help. So, you know, I want to start pushing more into the CVICU. I want to start seeing more of these patients for instrumentals, really giving them the bottom line, how you can help and where you're coming from and show them the literature is really, really helpful. And I think something that's actually really great um, if you want to use that Plowman article, and by the way, it's uh, Plowman. So 2021 called dysphagia after cardiac surgery, prevalence, risk factors, and associated outcomes from the ARC lab out of Florida, which I am obsessed and I am their fangirl for life. When they published that article, there were a couple commentary papers published by surgeons in response. And I think these are great to show to your own cardiac surgeon because it's like a peer-to-peer thing. So, for example, Dr. Robert Cameron out of UCLA published a commentary paper on this article. I'm just going to read you this two-sentence quote real quick. It is disturbing that some degree of swallowing dysfunction was almost universally present, 94%, in cardiac surgery patients, even in those without pre-existing symptoms. This finding alone may justify the use of routine post-operative feeds. Say that again, Lexi. Say that I again. I love that quote. Say that last part again. These <laughs> findings alone, they justify the use of routine post-operative feet. All right. All right. All right. Uh, I love it. I love it. I love and that's it. that's not it. just an SLP yelling it for the people in the back. It's, yeah. Yes. That is a surgeon awesome. saying that, which, you know, we can do the best that we, you know, that we can be as knowledgeable as we can, but sometimes they just need to hear it from another yep. MD. Yep. So, Going forward, if you are going to be pushing into the cardiovascular ICU, which I highly, highly, highly recommend, we need more speech pathologists to be just interested in this area. If you like being a dysphagia detective, this is the situation for you. Just know that it's going to be a process. It's not going to be easy, but it is going to be so incredibly rewarding to help these patients. Just keep in mind that I mean, we only have this one study, but based off of this and just based off of my clinical experience and experience talking to other cardiothoracic SLPs, aspiration with this population is prevalent and it's not always obvious. 15% of these patients were silently aspirating and the tools that we commonly use, like the three-ounce water swallow test, they don't have a high, as high of a sensitivity as we're used to. And something to keep in mind, though, is it's very important. So, okay, you're pushing into CVICUs, you've built some camaraderie with the team, you're getting these consults, you're doing these fees, or you're doing these videos. Be careful with your prognostics for these patients. If you're seeing somebody two days after cardiac surgery and they're just frankly aspirating everything, 
don't think that that's going to be that patient forever. I see this all the time where I do a study a day, two days after their surgery, maybe their respiratory status isn't that great. I take them for a video or I do a feed and they're just, they're struggling with everything. And I'm in the back of my mind immediately, I'm going, Oh my gosh, like, what are we going to do for the rest of their life? Like, are they going to be able to handle this aspiration or do we need to peg them? Like all these different swirly thoughts. And then you see them a couple of days later and they're breathing better and they're moving around with PT more and you redo their swallow study and they are absolutely perfect. Not a single thing wrong with them. You are discharging from caseload and it's like whiplash. Like it's so important to keep in mind that a lot of these factors for this immediate post-op dysphagia are going to resolve. Not all the time, but don't jump to prognostic conclusions. Thank you. you. I think you really, yeah, yeah. I want to, I want to chime in here with my sniff SLP hat on because I think, I mean, this just happens so much is that we would get these patients that would come in that had no instrumental and they're on these super restrict, they're either NPO or they're on, you know, honey thick liquids and puree diet or something, just super strict, but at bedside, they seem like everything's resolved. And it's just maddening that, you know, and I, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but if we can get these instrumentals in, in the ICU and when they're in acute care, everyone knows how logistically difficult it is to get them in to sniffs. And so this is me begging our acute care and ICU SLPs to help us help you. So, yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. I, I like to get an instrumental quickly because I want to see, can they do anything right now? Because a lot of the times they will look really, really scary at bedside and you'll do an instrumental and you can do something for them in the moment. It's really important that we're not delaying care for these patients. Get in there, get in there now. Say you go in there and okay, maybe they look like a train wreck and you're like, well, just because of who you are and how your lungs are functioning right now, let's do NPO for a couple of days and we'll redo this. Um, but get in there, get in there with ice chips, start doing some effortful swallows. If you take MGTP, I can't do MGTP um, exactly with these patients, but the principles that I learned from that course, I'm always incorporating of, I want to get in there early. I want them to practice. I want them to swallow, 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 swallow. And sometimes for these patients, I, I always consider modifying a diet the last, the absolute last resort. I do not like recommending modified diets. But for these people, a lot of the times I need to make a short-term recommendation for a modified diet, but I'm always making sure that the patient, the patient's family, and the medical team know that this is a short-term recommendation for right now, given their status in this moment. And I anticipate that this is going to start to resolve and that we are going to be following up with you. You are going to be repeating these tests. This is not a forever thing because my absolute fear is that the medical team or the patient themselves resigns themselves to, okay, well, this is just my swallowing now. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We need to be doing serial instrumentals on these patients. And I know there are so many barriers. There are barriers to from caseload. There are barriers from instrumentals. There are barriers just to getting the doctor on board. But just keeping in mind that even though there are those barriers, best practice for these patients is serial instrumentals. So whatever you can do to start 
nudging your facility in that direction. And it might take time, but it's going to pay off in dividends. These patients need to be met where they're at. And a lot of these factors that they have immediately post-op are going to start to resolve. Um, so I really highly recommend trying to get instrumentation at your facility. You're really going to want to start off with fees because fees is going to get you there at bedside, you know, same day, next day, day after. But then access to videos is also essential because with fees, I can't see the esophagus. So once that patient is stable enough, I want to do a video to see, take a different look at their swallow, see how they're functioning now that maybe they're breathing better or they're feeling more awake. And then I want to pan down and I want to be able to do that esophageal screen. Awesome. I love it. Um, I think uh, one thing that is an exciting area that I think we have so much untapped SLP potential for is the pre-op phase for cardiac patients. So getting to these patients before they come in for these elective surgeries to see where they're functioning at before. Because again, maybe just due to deconditioning and who they are, they might be a baseline aspirator and it works for them and they're mobile and alert. They move around, they brush their teeth. Then all of a sudden they're in the ICU after surgery and all those factors are different. They're stuck in an ICU bed. They're dependent for oral care. They're altered. That's a different person who might handle aspiration differently, especially when their lungs are feeling you know, sensitive after surgery. So getting in and just kind of knowing who those patients are who might have dysphagia before they come in is really important. And that might just be something where you talk to your surgeon, depending on how you know practice flow works at your place of your elective surgeries. Can I just call them? Can I ask them a couple questions? Can we give them the eat 10? Is there somebody who's already struggling to swallow and they're already losing weight before they come into surgery? And you can give that, that information to a surgeon from a perspective they understand of if this person's already losing weight and their nutritional status is compromised, we know that that can impact surgical outcomes. So why don't we get to them before they get here? And I think if you can talk to your surgeons and say, hey, if I can start triaging these pre-op patients, I can keep dysphagia from being labeled as a post-op outcome for some of them. You are speaking their love language. They want those post-op outcomes. If you can establish that this was something that the patient came in with, it looks better for their surgical outcomes. And, you know, in a dream world, I think the next exciting thing is going to be prophylactic EMST with these patients. So, we know that their lungs are going to take a hit from the surgery. We know that they are at higher risk for having some sort of, you know, nerve shock, so recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, or just, you know, just being a little bit of a brat after surgery. Um, these people are less likely to have effective cough after surgery. If we can get in there before in the pre-op phase and give them EMST, do a couple sessions so they know how to use it. And, you know, maybe they do four weeks of EMST before they come into surgery and we bolster that functional reserve. That dip after surgery is going to be less functionally impactful because they're starting from a higher place. And I think it's a great piece of data that Plowman and her colleagues pulled out of their uh, data set where, remember, about a third, between a third and a fourth were aspirating. And of those aspirators, 
only 15% were able to produce an effective cough and clear that material. So it wasn't very many patients. It was in total, I think it was like eight or 10 people overall were aspirating and coughing it out. However, when you looked at the outcome data from that small subsection, none of them were reintubated. None of them got pneumonia. None of them had the 90-day mortality. So we can't extrapolate this to say like, oh, if you have an effective cough, like you're immune to all sorts of dysphagia outcomes. We can't say that. But it's a really fascinating area to explore of if you have a functional cough, you seem to maybe be a little bit more protected against all of these negative outcomes of aspiration. So if we can get to people before they come in for surgery, bolster their cough, bolster their respiratory status, are we going to be able to protect them from some of these negative outcomes after surgery? I think that is such a fascinating place where we can really get in there and make a difference. I agree. So exciting. I just, overall, what I would want to say to speech pathologists is that cardiovascular ICUs, they are intense and they can be really intimidating but if you enjoy being a detective, you are going to love it there. If you can put your head down and really put in some work to build relationships with that team, you know, go take a, an afternoon and actually learn about the heart, you know, just study the chambers and how blood flows and some common CVICU terminology just so that you can speak, speak their language and push yourself into the cardiovascular ICU, this whole new world of all of this benefit that you can give these patients is going to open up. And it is incredibly, incredibly rewarding to go in there and really help someone through a really, really rough time. So I just, I think it's the next up and coming area of speech pathology. I really just want more people to be interested in this in this topic. I think cardiothoracics is absolutely fascinating. Um, I just really encourage people to try, to try and push yourself into these units. We can do so much benefit there and reach out. So when I was going through this process, it was really frustrating to not have, you know, a specific CEU course that I could take or a specific book of cardiac speech pathology that I could read. You have to reach out to other people to find speech pathologists who are already doing this work, which I was incredibly fortunate to just through the collective connect with people. I ended up connecting with Lauren Herman, who you guys might know as the SLP advocate. And she was able to put me in touch with some cardiothoracic SLPs and just having that network and not feeling so alone has completely changed my outlook for my practice because it can feel like being on a really lonely island all by yourself if you're trying to push into cardiothoracic by yourself. Building that network, reaching out to other people is going to be so essential and so incredibly rewarding. I love it. I love your passion for all of this so much, Lexi. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So a few things left to cover here. Sure. So treatment considerations in the cardiovascular ICU are going to be really dependent on how fresh post-op they are. So one of the things that I find very frequently is that these patients are not getting the arytenoid adduction that I want them to get. <laughs> so while I don't have access to EMST, I can go to respiratory and steal a PEEP valve from them. 
So if you go up to a respiratory therapist and you ask them for a PEEP valve, they should know what you're talking about. And they can give you this little device that they use for AMBU bags. And it's just, it's kind of approximating what like an EMST light might do. But really, it only goes from like zero centimeters of water pressure to like 20. Um, and it's not specifically designed for expiratory muscle strength training, but we're just kind of jerry-rigging the equipment that we already have to get to try and target a little bit of that arytenoid adduction. So for these post-op patients, they have typically a midline incision. And a lot of times they don't want these patients to do a lot of heavy coughing or a lot of forceful exhalation because it can put pressure on that incision. So talking with your surgeons about maybe using a PEEP valve, which is very low pressure, it's just sort of like a, just trying to get them to do something to target that arytenoid adduction. Like if we're talking about how I like to say it, nerve shock, then I want those nerves to just kind of wake up with repeated practice. So using a PEEP valve can be a really good tool even when they're in the NPO stage, even when they're in the I can only do ice chips basically stage to just target that arytenoid deduction because a lot of these patients, they're aspirating into arytenoid. So the aspiration is sneaking in during the swallow through those arytenoids. And so by using a PEEP valve, you can sort of start to target a little bit of that adduction, but you have to clear that through your surgeon because depending on the type of surgery they did, the patient's overall status, you are not going to be able to determine when it is appropriate and safe. You have to go to your surgeon and say, hey, can I do a little bit of respiratory muscle strength training with them? Going in there early and getting them to do things with ice chips. So say I go in for a fresh post-op and they're aspirating everything. I'm still going to start principles of dysphagia therapy, which is repetitive practice over and over again, as much as their alertness and body can handle. I'm going to start doing that with ice chips. I want them to start doing effortful swallows. I want them to start swallowing because the worst thing that I can think of for these type of patients is to keep them NPO after surgery, not swallowing anything, and revisit this in three to four days. They're going to start to decondition very quickly. So the sooner you can get in there and just start doing something is going to be fantastic. Um, so for my practice, I would say the most common things that I use are just going to be principles of dysphagia therapy that I learned from MDTP or McNeil dysphagia therapy program and um, some sort of respiratory strength training attempts using a PEEP valve. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And then just keep in mind actually that a lot of this, you want to keep them, you want to go in there and get there early and start them swallowing and start them doing things. But a lot of this is going to just start spontaneously improving. So when the respiratory status gets better, you know, they're going to start swallowing better. When they're more awake, they're going to start swallowing better. So we want to get in there to make sure that we can bolster them as much as possible, but they're going to start getting better more likely than not on their own. Um, so that's why the serial instrumentals are going to be the most essential part of this. Awesome. So another part of working in the CVICU is taking into consideration their cognitive status and their voice. So it's not going to be the bulk of your work there, but it is something to keep in mind. So cognitive status, like we've already mentioned, can be just acutely affected from the surgery that they had, from the anesthesia, from the pain medications. But it is important to keep in mind that 
heart failure in and of itself can produce cognitive impairments. So anytime the brain is not receiving the perfusion that it would like, we can get cognitive impairments. So these patients with heart failure can start to present with cognitive challenges. And that's really important when considering, you know, how well is this patient going to be able to take care of themselves after the surgery? Are they going to remember all the complicated discharge recommendations? So keep in mind that cognitive status is something that you should be always kind of attending to while you're doing your dysphagia workups and therapy. And specifically, for example, like LVAD patients, which is that long-term heart pump, it's actually, they put it in the apex of the heart, um, which is actually the bottom in the left ventricle, and it helps pump blood for patients in systolic heart failure. With LVAD, they can actually get improved cognitive status after the surgery because now they're getting increased perfusion to their brain. And depending on how your facility um, runs things, if you have an LVAD team at your facility, it is really worthwhile to try and connect with the LVAD team to see if you can be a part of that team, not only for post-op considerations, but for pre-op. So an LVAD, because it's a device that's just left in the body. It's not something that they take out after surgery. It has so many pieces and um, just the overhaul of your daily life because now they've got something internal that they now have um, a drive line that comes out of their stomach and connects to like a control unit and batteries and backup batteries. And you have to make sure that you're cognitively able to manage that device. So you need to make sure you're control unit is charged, the backup batteries, you have backup batteries to your backup batteries. You have to manage so much with an LVAD that doing a pre-op cognitive assessment can actually help the LVAD team make decisions about who might be appropriate and who might not be appropriate based off of how much social support. Because if you put an LVAD into somebody who's got significant cognitive impairments from their heart failure, that's going to be dangerous if they don't have constant social support, because if you forget to charge those, if you forget to connect to a power source, that's incredibly dangerous for your LVAD to just turn off. That's what's pumping blood for you. So keep in mind that SLP's knowledge of cognition can be helpful for these patients in the pre-op stage and then monitoring them in the post-op stage. And then for voice, Voice is something that we should also be considering. If you're seeing a patient after a surgery and all of a sudden they're severely dysphonic or aphonic, that's just another indication to you that maybe they're not getting great focal fold mobility. Maybe those arytenoids aren't adducting. Something might be wrong. Maybe there's a granuloma. Maybe there's an injury from intubation. And this is just another piece of the puzzle of why we need fees and why the fees is so important because now I can look at swallowing and I can look at voice. Am I going to be able to treat it in this acute stage? Maybe, maybe not. I do find that using some of the PEEP valve modality and just doing some respiratory work can help improve their voice, but at least knowing giving them the answer of why their voice might be sounding like this and being able to triage them to, okay, outpatient, you need to go see an ENT, outpatient, you need to go see a speech pathologist is really important. You need to keep voice in mind because anytime you see a patient who's got a significant dysphonia, even if they're looking fine with 
uh, PO with foods and drinks, that should be maybe setting off an alarm bell. There's some sort of laryngeal injury or laryngeal dysfunction, and maybe this might be one of that 15% who's silently aspirating. So just keep in the back of your mind cognition and voice. That's not going to be the forefront of your practice, but you can't neglect it altogether. We are speech-language pathologists. Right, right. Awesome. Lexi, this has been so, so fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, so thank thank you so much, Lexi. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share with the people? Just encourage them to get in there and learn what they can. Yeah. And yeah, please just start if you're working in acute care and you don't really have someone who's a dedicated cardiovascular um, speech pathologist, or you're not getting a lot of consults in that area, or you know you're just feeling like this is not something that anybody really in particular specializes in, this is a huge opportunity to really dive in, to really open up a whole new world of service and a whole new world of good that we can do for these patients. Reach out. Um, If anybody wants to get in contact with me, I recently made an Instagram, Lexi SLP. It's L-E-X-Y-S-L-P. I'm more than happy to connect with people if they have questions, because I remember how overwhelming and scary and exhausting this whole process can be. So if I can help someone just kind of orient to the steps that they need to take, I would be more than happy to do that. I just I want speech mythology to really dive into this area. I'm so excited for the future. I think this is going to be a great area of service for us. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Lexi. This has been so wonderful. Thank you. Yes. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.